Our story from last week left off in the middle of a tragedy. For those of you who weren't here, I'll try to do my best to catch this up a little bit. And that tragedy continued on in verse 44. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And if you are part of the biblical tradition, you know a little bit about your story, you know that darkness and sun's light is a direct kickback to Genesis 1. So as Genesis was creating light and dispelling darkness, here the events of Jesus' crucifixion was dispelling light and creating darkness, a complete reversal of what is supposed to happen in the story. Now, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph who, though a member of the council, that's the leading Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin, they were the people in charge of rules and legislation over the religious community. They had not, had not agreed to their plan of action. There's somebody who's a holdout, somebody who's a traitor, somebody who's betraying the religious establishment. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. So he went to Pilate with a tremendous amount of chutzpah or money or status. How in the world does a lowly person get to the highest ranking officer in the land? And asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. In other words, they were witnesses to the death and the burial. They were there. They saw it with their own eyes. Eyewitnesses are a key theme in the gospel according to Luke. If you go back to the very beginning, the opening words of Luke speak to his searching out for eyewitness testimony. This is going to be huge, really important theme for, for what's coming. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment because they were good, observant Jews. Chapter 24 takes a turn and something completely unexpected happens in this story. Because everything that we just read leads to one conclusion. You anoint the body, you go back to fishing, you continue on with life as best as you can, given that your movement is now dead because your leader is dead. It's done, through. But, and that's a big but. My daughter likes it when I say big buts. Really big buts. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. Taking the spices that they, what were they prepared to see? They were prepared to see a dead body. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. At which particular point you go, huh? Now I know, if you're a Christian or you're part of American culture, you've heard this story, you're like, well, duh, go back to this moment. And go, if you were there preparing 
to anoint a body and the body is not there, what's your immediate response and reaction? Now, I know if you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus and the resurrection means something, you're like, hallelujah, celebration. Hallelujah, celebration is not the response that these people are going to have at this moment. This is actually not very good news. Notice all these clues, too, that the author is putting in here. Day one links once again back to the Genesis creation story. Anytime you see those days, and especially the ordinal numbers, excuse me, the cardinal numbers, this is day one, not the first day, but day one, which is the exact verbiage that Genesis 1 uses. There's something brand new that God is doing, and especially given the story that we have of Genesis, of God calling a whole new creation out of chaos, there's something that's coming. There's these clues, once again, that are being dropped in. They found, this word found is going to show up multiple times, by the way. It's the Greek word eurisko, which is where we get our word eureka. And throughout the gospel of, according to Luke, you're going to see finding is a really key element in this story. Sheep and coin, as well as the sun, given the parable of lost things that we have talked about before. Jesus finds faith in the spirit. I mean, it's just all over the gospel according to Luke. So at the very end of this story, the women find the, the, find the tomb empty there. So this finding is going to be a big theme. And one, one possible interpretation of that finding is that this is evidence of faithfulness. They are following through. They are doing what they were called and supposed to do. What did they find? They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, again, this is not good news. If you showed up to this scene and saw the stone rolled away, this is, by the way, a picture of a first century tomb found on the hills of Mount Carmel in Israel. This is not good news. Why? Because there are robbers. And throughout the ancient world, and even today, there are grave robbers who recognize that people who pass away are usually buried with things that are valuable, things that were important to them, so they are buried with them. And so if you're a grave robber, you're all in it. Let's get that gold, let's get that silver, let's get all of those things that are worth something. So when they find the stone rolled away, again, this is not good news. Nobody's happy about this. Nobody's expecting this. Nobody's wanting this to happen. This is, and nobody's celebrating. The stone rolled away actually means something terrible and bad has happened. And once again, there's a reference to the body, which is hearkening back to the message from last week. That all of the stuff that we've talked about, about the kingdom of God, resides and manifests itself upon the body. So they're looking for that very body. Verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. They were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But they said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Notice this phrase. They are completely at a loss for any explanation. On the morning of the event that we celebrate on this side of history, in that moment, in that time, complete confusion, at a loss for words, perplexed, there is no explanation. This is giving you a hint and a clue that they were not expecting a resurrection. They were not expecting Jesus to come up out of the grave. They were expecting to find the body there, dead, bless it, and then move on with their lives somehow. Find a new Messiah, find a new revolution, find a new leader. And this, by the way, is one of my favorite phrases in the entire scriptures. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Something that we still do to this day. Why do you look for the living amongst Facebook? Sorry, that was a little snarky. My bad, my bad. But this is the opposite of finding, is the looking. 
Remember how he told you, these men said, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning to the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Have you ever had that moment where an event happens and all of a sudden your brain kicks back to a week ago, a month ago, a year ago when somebody said something to you? You're like, oh, that's, that's what he was talking about. I didn't get it then, but I get it now. Everything is actually starting to come together. This perplexity, this uncertainty is now all starting to like, wait a second, I probably should have been paying attention all of those years to those teachings, to those hints, to those prophecies, to those drops of the scripture that Jesus put into all of his teachings. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. This word idle tale is a word that just simply means complete fabrication. Something completely made up. Like you're, you're speaking gibberish to me right now. This makes no sense. By the way, if any of you, uh, this was written in the email, find what we're about to talk about a little bit fantastic and out of this world, you're not the only ones. They didn't believe. I, one of the things that I don't think is highlighted enough is how much doubt, disbelief, and uncertainty there is woven into our story. So if you've ever had doubt, disbelief, questions about what is true, what you can believe, what is, who, who is actually telling the truth, you're not alone. It's woven into the fabric of our story. And here at the very beginning of the story of the resurrection, the thing that we celebrate every single Easter, <laughs> sorry, what, what the heck are you talking about? This makes no sense to me. But Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. There are quite literally hundreds of thousands, millions of commentaries, words, reflections that have been said about this particular moment throughout history. And we will, will spend the rest of our existence mining the depths of how brilliant and beautiful these passages are and the event that they refer to. What happened in the crucifixion story and the resurrection story of Jesus is in many ways beyond an explanation, but it requires us to constantly revisit over and over and over again just how deep and how wide this explanation can go. For today, um, and so when I was preparing for today, I was like, where the heck do we go? Because we're going to be talking about the resurrection actually a little bit when we get to our uh, core value series in the next couple of weeks. We talk about resurrection every Easter, hopefully. You know? uh, and so I wanted to just simply ask the question for us in this particular time, is this story too incredible to actually believe? Because one angle that I'd like to propose for us, and again, this is not the only angle. One of the angles that I'd like to propose is the audacity of affirming or claiming that a dead man rose up out of the grave. 
when we live in 21st century, Silicon Valley, post-enlightened, rationalist thinking, scientifically minded, miracles don't happen kind of a world and culture. What in the world do we do as followers of Jesus who live in that kind of world and culture? And yet we speak of a story that just seems honestly too incredible. The general way in which people throughout history and specifically in the most recent couple hundreds of years since rationalism and scientific thought really kind of took hold of our culture, although scientific thought goes way back, is there's been two general themes. This is an oversimplification, but two general themes of how people have done this. The first direction that people usually go is like, you know what? Whether or not it happened, whether or not, like, the, the, the big question is, is, if you had an iPhone back in the first century at 30 AD in Jerusalem at this tomb and hit slow-mo on the grave, what would you see? What would the camera capture? Some people would say, that's completely irrelevant. What's most important is that these stories mean something. In other words, it's metaphor, it's a story, it's a narrative, it's something that we tell ourselves to help frame our religion and our ideas. And, and so some people just stay there. I want to talk about what the resurrection means. I want to talk about how you live out a resurrected life. I want to talk about that. But the affirmation, the scientific affirmation of this thing happening, that's really not what we're interested in. On the other hand, you have Christian apologists and other people who actually focus very much on this question and say, in fact, the fact that it happened, that we can historically, through historiography and through scientific inquiry, uh, can confirm and affirm that this actually happened. This is what's really important. And then whatever you make meaning of it is totally fine for you. But what's really important is that it happened. And that affirms a whole slew of ideas, including things about Jesus and about Christianity. And that's what happened here. I'm going to propose to you, my friends, that these... This kind of dichotomy really isn't available to us. I don't think our story gives us this option of doing either or. When you read through these texts, when you really ask the question, what are they communicating? When you consider carefully what actually happened in the first century in 30 AD in Jerusalem on that Sunday morning, sometime in the spring, when you act, we don't get the option of only asking what does it mean or only asking if it happened. In fact, the story that we just read from Luke 24, just those brief verses of the women showing up expecting one thing and then all of a sudden being shocked that the thing that they were expecting didn't happen. And then Peter going, excuse me? And needing to go and confirm indicates to me that the story actually suggests that this is what we have to do. It is not an either or. But the question of whether or not it happened is part and parcel and critical to what it actually means. And you don't have the meaning if you don't have the event. The story that we just told does not give us the option to do one or the other. We have to do both. We have to recognize that what is being claimed at this moment, at that time, is an affirmation that the physical body of Jesus was no longer there rose up out of the grave, and then, of course, the consecutive stories that we're not covering today appeared to many people affirming many things about who he was, who he is, and who he claimed to continue to be. 
So this is my proposal. We do not have the option of asking only what does it mean or only did it happen. And for those of you who are in your circles of scientific friends or Christian apologists or however you have these conversations, I have a feeling you will probably find yourself in one of these two categories. And I would propose that you consider those two categories are not very distinct. They are necessary and contingent upon one another. What I'd like to do is then based upon this framework, actually do something in the reverse. Because over time, what the resurrection actually meant to the early Christians, which is, what, which is the inheritance that we now have to this day, is in many ways an indicator, is in many ways an affirmation of what happened. In, o- in other words, the story goes in one direction, but also folds on top of itself. Because as you watch Christians followers of Jesus in the early centuries live and behave and move, they are, by acting out what the resurrection meant, is affirming that it actually happened. This is possibly, oh, sorry. The details of the story do not map on to alternative explanations. You can't read the story without affirming this, both. So here's another possible way to think about it. You had an event, you have what people know or understand about the event, and then you have what it means. And what it means includes and is absolutely contingent upon whether or not it happened. Because Paul's later on going to say, if it didn't happen, then it doesn't mean anything. So if you, this, this is our text. This is our story. And what I'm going to try to do is take a little bit of an angle as to what it means. Because honestly, answering the question of, did it happen, is going to be a much longer seminar and some lectures in historiography uh, that we don't really want to do on a Sunday afternoon. So what I want to do is just ask the question, what did it mean? And that's going to point to ultimately that it happened. Um, This is also evidenced. uh, We're going to take a look at one particular angle, which is the Hellenistic angle from the Greeks, the philosophy, the ideology of which this story emerges. And Paul actually references this regarding the crucifixion. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul recognizes that the emergence of this story, both the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection, is absolutely nonsense. This is the word scandalon. It's an absolute scandal to the Jewish people. Like this, this does not make sense. Dead messiahs, crucified messiahs are dead. The, the movement is done. No more. And to claim that you have a movement based upon a dead messiah will not make sense. And then I love this phrase, foolishness. It's actually the word morion, which is where we get the word moron. Uh, it's moronic. And then in a very awesome way, basically what Paul is doing is he's using that same phrase. He's like turning it. It's like, yeah, God's, God's moron, moronic or more moronicisms. I don't know. God's morion is wiser. So if God's a moron, it, it, that is wiser than human. I like, though the rhetorical turn is always super fun. So what I like to do is based upon this general motif, this general idea, let's take a look at a guy by the name of Plato. Does anybody know Plato? Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Yes, Princess Bride will continue to be our grounding theological premise here. 
The general idea of Plato is that took hold of Western civilization that we even still hold to this particular day is this. This is a cat, physical cat, lying on the mat. And Plato, in his philosophical construct, began thinking about what happened uh, if the cat didn't exist. Um, is this cat actually real? And what Plato came up with in a long history of Hellenistic philosophy, Greek philosophy, is that the cat is definitely real. But do you know what's more real than the cat? The idea of a cat. The reason why the idea of a cat is more important than the form of the cat is because what if the cat dies and goes away? Would your idea, would your imagination, would your thinking about a cat also go away? And the answer to Plato is no. You would actually still think or conceive of a cat. And so this physical form of the cat is real, but it's not as real and it's not as ultimate as the idea of the cat. He would call this the form, but he would call this the idea. The idea of the cat is actually more real than the physical cat. You might read this as uh, being analogous to a chair as well. You're all sitting in chairs. Is the chair real? Yes, it's real. But if the chair went away and you tore it apart, the idea of a chair would still be there. In fact, the idea preceded the very forming and the making of the chair. So that makes, if this is more real, if the idea of the cat, the idea of the chair is more real, then what does that make this? We're all just shadows. This very physical thing is really just a shadow of something that's even more real. This is, a, again, an oversimplification, but a general idea of how the Platonic world began to seep into much of Western thinking. It's captivated people, not only in Greece, but all throughout the Hellenistic world in the first century, and even up to this day, as I'm going to show, I'm going to propose to you. The Platonic world is the thing that's most real, and it did something very weird. It became this physical world. This physical world is definitely real, but it's not as real, not as true, not as good, not as beautiful as the idea of that world. One of the manifestations that came into the first century was this thing called Gnosticism. Everybody say Gnosticism. Actually, you pronounce it wrong. It's pronounced Gnosticism. Like in the ancient Greeks, you're supposed to pronounce the G. So it's Gnosticism. It's obviously where we get our word knowledge. And the idea that the inner knowing, if you can somehow connect with this higher idea, then you are now attaining to real enlightenment, true enlightenment. So if the idea is more important, if that beauty and truth about the concept of the idea of the person, the physical chair, the cat, the human is more important than the actual physical body, then what do you think of the physical body? Not important whatsoever. In fact, it's not just not important, it's like grotesque. It's like, why would the soul, another part of Plato's idea, why would the soul which is fully beautiful, fully wonderful, fully good, the ultimate essence of what it means to be you. Why would the soul ever condescend itself to be a physical body? That's just gross. I think I heard uh, or read that N.T. Wright once uh, quote Plato as saying, it's like the soul putting itself in jail. Because this body is not as good, not as beautiful as the thing up there. This idea that what is up there is more important, more good, more beautiful than what is down here, 
has absolutely manifested itself in our Christian theology even to this day and in ways in which people have thought about the resurrection. And so people have thought that the resurrection means that I get to go to heaven when I die. Listen to that phrase. When I get, I get to go to heaven when I die. And heaven, heaven, oops, sorry. Heaven, this idea of heaven is actually the thing that we're all striving for, the thing that's more beautiful, more good than this world. We talk about it in that way. Heaven is more beautiful. It's perfect. Pearly gates, streets of gold. I can, you know, go up to Jesus and ask him any question that I want and not ever be ashamed, right? Like, this is what it is, but I can't wait to get there. I'm going to propose to you, my friends, that actually nobody in the first century, none of these people ever read the resurrection story, ever saw the empty tomb, and now all of a sudden came to the awareness, oh, now I get to go to heaven when I die. That's not in our story. Another uh, implication of this kind of split universe is that the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. And all of a sudden now we get, we get to identify Jesus as the deification of our theology. Jesus is God. And that's what the resurrection proves. But again, these people, the story that we just read, you don't find that in the story. The resurrection did not mean that Jesus was God. Again, the, the idea that the elevation of the deity of Jesus is actually more important than his physical nature, which is all part of church history, and you can read all about that. And then the other thing that Christians often do, that stories that I've heard and grew up with, is that the resurrection actually proves that miracles are true. Miracles are what, are, what happened. And, and miracles are more good, more beautiful, more perfect, because they're supernatural. Like the things that happen naturally, eh, we know about natural laws, but the things that happen supernaturally, ah, that's what's more good, more beautiful, more perfect. But once again, no one in this first century, when you read the story, all of a sudden came to the realization that miracles are true and therefore more perfect and more beautiful. That is not what happened in this story. And all of these things that we just mentioned, don't they make sense when you think about this split level universe that we have? These things actually live up here. And we've elevated them as to being more important than what is down here. I can't wait to get rid of my body so I can get to heaven. Honestly, the mundane of everyday life is kind of boring. I can't wait to see wonderful miracles happen. And sometimes in some sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Christianity, it's the miracle that's the thing that we're searching after. The supernatural experience. And then, of course, claiming that Jesus is God and affirming this. These things all live up here, not down here. But the the story we just read includes none of these, and the rest of the story doesn't include any of this stuff. Sure, there are miracles. Absolutely, there's heaven. Does Jesus claim to be? Yes, that's woven all throughout the story. So I'm not saying these aren't true. Don't ever anybody walk away and say that. That's what Kevin said. What I'm saying is that the resurrection, the story that we just read, does not point to these things as affirming them. It meant something else. So the question is, what did it mean? What did it mean? Think about a dead man in Plato's philosophy. The soul has been released from that human is now free to roam in the more perfect, more beautiful, most good place. And then all of a sudden come back into the body. What would that mean for somebody who is a Platonist 
philosopher. What would that mean for somebody who believed that the soul being up in heaven is the most good thing? It's like, why would you want to come back here? And so, very much like the last message that we talked about yesterday, or last week, I should say, just as much as the crucifixion pointed to the brokenness of this world and the injustice that exists in this world as a manifestation upon our body, so too, so too, the resurrection points to this body being also the exemplification of God's restoration, God's hope, God's renewal. Not of that world, but of this world. Because what the resurrection ultimately states and what the first followers of Jesus then went on to believe and live is that this world, this physical place is actually good. We're not waiting to get out of here to get to somewhere there. That's more good. Wait a second. This dead Jesus came back to life here in physical form. This world is good. This place is good. God's recreation doesn't happen later. It happens now, right here with all of us. This body that people abhor, that people think is grotesque, is an an enjailment of our own souls. This body that does not, honestly, nobody wants to look at. It's not beautiful. No, actually, this body is good. This body is valuable. This body is worth loving and nourishing and expressing its fullness in this world. And that means also then that this life, this life that we live here on this planet, in our every day, from this day forward, is actually worth living fully and completely to the fullest. And what ultimately ended up happening, which is honestly an astonishing thing in history, is that these followers of Jesus, who on Saturday and even Sunday morning, We're ready to concede defeat. It's over. The game is done. We have lost. Rome has won. Jesus is dead. The body is about ready to be prepared to be decayed. We're going home, back to fishing. We're done. That movement went off into the world and completely transformed how they lived out this event. And if, if, what Jesus taught about, and if God actually raised Jesus from the dead, and if that means that the injustice that happened to Jesus's body is now being reversed in his body, then justice must matter to God. If in Jesus's body, a reconstitution, a resurrection of this physical form and its life matters, then compassion actually matters to God. Mercy actually matters to God. Love, radical welcome, care, humility, which ultimately leads to things like human rights and environmental care and creation care. All of these things began to emerge out of this nascent early Christian movement because the resurrection meant this world matters. And if injustice is done to break a body and God resurrects and raises that body, that means that that injustice, that brokenness, that pride, that arrogance is being reversed. And it must be undone. And so the early followers of Jesus said, okay, I, th- I think I get it. It's not about going to heaven when we die. It's about creating and fulfilling exactly what Jesus was teaching all along, right here, right now. They wanted to quit, of course, because they were a part of a movement that was somewhat influenced by whatever that 
that thing over there is going to be. And what Jesus does in the resurrection, no, hello, friends, hello, had anybody home? Right here, right now, this physical form matters to God. I would propose to you, my friends, that the resurrection is not just a declaration. Hey, I want you to believe that it's true. An event that we can affirm historically. Or evidence. See, I told you Jesus, I told you it's true. It's not just all of these things. Although there may be elements to that. The resurrection is actually a commission. That's what it is. To go and now do in this world what God did in Jesus. That's what this story is. If God did that in Jesus, the early followers said, we must now go and do that for the world. Whatever reversal of injustice, whatever reversal of chaos, whatever reversal of sin happened in that moment in the resurrection, we must now go and do that same thing. In any ways, it's the resurrection that launches that event launches out all of the values, all the ways in which these early Christians behaved. Why? Because it actually happened. They stared that tomb in the face, that empty tomb, and all of a sudden came to the realization, because this is true, because this happened, we must now go and do the same. I'm not against anybody arguing for the historicity of of the resurrection. I'm not obviously against any of the things that we mentioned about heaven, about Jesus being God, about miracles. These are all wonderful, beautiful conversations that are woven throughout our text. This resurrection story does not point to those. It points to us recognizing that God did something radical in the reversal of all that injustice and sin. We now must go and do the same because it happened. Because it happened. And there's just one more thing. Am I the only one that thinks that's funny? I think that's funny. Just like there's this split between what it meant and what it, um, whether or not it happened, and our story does not give us this option, just like I think that flows out of the very same kind of space, there's another conversation that I've been having around all of these values and the ways in which people live Um, that I think is very much appropriate to this. This is our good friend, Justin Lee, and he and I have had some conversations over the years about what something that I will call the dilemma. The dilemma that we have constantly run into. For those of you who don't know Justin, he is one of the uh, most well-known voices and advocates for LGBTQ inclusion and advocacy in the church in 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 America. Uh, He's a good friend of ours. And the dilemma is simply this. If you're looking for a church that affirms somebody's identity and gives true radical welcome and inclusion, the problem with many of those churches is that they've thrown out much of the Jesus story, things like resurrection, because these things are just too, we we understand that they're just stories. We understand that they're just metaphors. So we don't have to make any strong affirmations. But the problem is the flip side, find a church that actually does affirm the beauty of this Jesus story, find a church that does advocate for those things, but the problem is then you don't necessarily have a church that is going to be welcoming, that's going to actually be affirming, that's going to push for things like justice and compassion and mercy. And so he and I have talked uh, at, at length about what in the world is this divide about? 
And what I'm going to suggest to you is that the very same thing that we've done with what it means and what has happened has manifested itself in this very reality that many of us feel today. That the idea of radical justice and inclusion and love actually comes out of an affirmation of the event. And you need one in order to get to the other. And Spark, uh, for many years now, has done our best to try to say, in our posture, in our position, in our policies regarding people's welcome and inclusion, it has absolutely nothing to do with being socially justice-minded or being progressive or being liberal, whatever labels you want to throw at us. It's been very uh, interesting and a little bit disheartening for us to hear that because we hold to certain policies and procedures, that makes us liberal. It doesn't, this, this is what it makes us. It makes us people who live out the meaning of this in everyday life. And I know people may disagree, but I'm telling you that the thing, the conviction for us is not just to live here. It's to live here. The fullness of how we live and act in our justice, in our compassion, in our mercy, in our inclusion, in our radical welcome, all of the things that we do in our refugee supports and efforts, all of that is as a result of an affirmation that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if God raised Jesus from the dead and is reversing the injustice in the world, we are called to do the same. It's kind of that simple. And our story does not give us the option to opt out of either one of those. As so often many churches, unfortunately, do. And I don't want to say that to prop ourselves up. I know that can, that can come across very arrogant. I'm just letting you know that that is the affirmation that we have lived with for many, many years. And the one that we will continue to attempt to push forward into the world. Any efforts that we have regarding our love, reputation, rescue resurrection and reconciliation efforts are as a result of that event because it happened and because it happened this world means something radically completely different this event is what we celebrate every single week as we come to this particular table and as we have done in the past and will continue to do we recognize that these elements point to and remind us of the fullness of this story. So my friends, we're going to continue on in our singing and we are going to invite every single one of you to this table. As we've said, this is not our table. This is Jesus's table. And so everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited to partake. And the partaking of the elements, the bread and the juice, is once again an affirmation, a declaration, and a commission and a commitment that what these, elements symbol, uh, what these elements symbolize and represent is a radical new life, a radical new justice, a radical new compassion, a radical new welcome that is taking place yet again, once again, in our life, right here. Not up there, not at some distant time in the future, not in some better place that is up in heaven, but in this really good, worthwhile, lovely beautiful place in your lovely, beautiful, worthy body. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is 
my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing, my friends, please come. All are welcome at this table.